Welcome to another episode of the MAG Debrief. Um, I'm John Severs, Commissioning Editor at TES. We have Gronya Hallahan, Senior Content Writer and Recruitment Editor. And we've got Dan Worth, International Editor. And as always, we're going to take a quick look through the magazine and have a good discussion and try not to take the mick out of Gronya too much because my friend Pete, who's an avid listener, suggested that we need to go light on her. So let's get started. Okay, so first up, Gronya, uh, you are going to talk about a cover feature that you not only wrote, that you came up with the idea for it, and it's a really, really important issue. So I will hand straight over to you. Thank you. So the cover to this week is all about female teachers who, for various different reasons, have not got children and their experience in the classroom. It's something that I think about a lot. And I think that a lot of focus often goes on to the experience of women in the classroom after they've had children and returning from maternity and all of the issues that are tangled up with that. But this gives some space and some time and consideration to the experiences of women who, for different reasons. So in the feature, we've got a, a teacher who doesn't have children because that's her choice. She's chosen not to have children another teacher who has, hasn't got children at the moment, hasn't quite made their mind up, but is erring on the side of not having children, and another teacher who cannot have children, though she wants to have children. And they share their stories and it's very moving and it's, it, it gives you a real time to question about how you yourself might have treated women in that position and the way that we speak to people and the language that surrounds teaching and teachers and our expectations of women in the classroom and it's a it's a really moving feature it's very interesting the stories of the the teachers are very thought-provoking what got me was that it's a double hit in teaching in that it's seen as a wrongly as a as a female profession as a, as a nurturing profession um you know so that it has these feminine attributes and then you have this hit that okay women are nurturing and women are supposed to be uh you know feminine and mother and, and, and embrace motherhood and then they're, 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 there's this expectation that to be a good teacher you have to be a good mother and the route from the start of that sentence to the end of the sentence is so wrong and so damaging I think and it really comes out I think especially in the teacher who chosen not to have children and I think her experience is, is quite traumatic to read actually. It's that idea that women without children have families too it's it sounds like a really straightforward thing but it, there's this assumption all the time that you know oh you haven't got children you can do this and you can do that and or or on the, on the reverse of that you don't have children so you must be a certain sort of person there must be something a little bit wrong with you because you don't want to have children and that kind of nasty is it's so it's, it's insidious it's everywhere and it's very difficult to pin people down on it because oh I didn't mean it like that you're taking that the wrong way it's a very difficult difficult attitude to challenge because then you're 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 confirming that thought that they have of you that you're difficult and in some way um not not feminine and by challenging somebody you're just exacerbating that you're making it worse for yourself so it's it's something that I really cared about and I wanted to write about and it's something that I remember from my time before I had children and what, the way that I was treated in the classroom and the assumptions that people make about you and I think everybody male female with children without children will read this and, and relate to their stories in some way it's the part it's the moment that one of the teachers said someone sent her an ovulation app i mean 
I mean, what an invasion of privacy, (laughs) like what an assumption to make, you know, oh, you must be trying for a baby. So here's an ovulation app. I mean, I couldn't believe it when I read that. Teacher does a really good job, I think, of highlighting some of the things that people get wrong in this scenario, like things they say. And and you do think you read it on the printed page, you think, yeah, why would you ever say that? You know, like (laughs) you can always adopt or, you know, all the the, the teacher particularly who has the fertility issue and sort of says, people say oh you know they, they tell these miracle stories of it, how it happened to me or you know someone else I know and it's just like yeah but that's not what they want to hear because you know that's very very unlikely and you know you need to be more careful about it and yeah like you said the app story as well there's some really insights into like it's a it's, a, it's, an, it's an, issue, an issue that teachers should think about and um, I'm sure many do but I'm sure there are some who probably have would read this and think oh yeah I think I might say that someone once and actually it's not really the right thing to say to that person at that point no and it's the parents as well like oh you wouldn't understand you don't have your kids mm. your own and the teacher says i'm not being funny mate but i've been teaching classes of 30 kids for the past 10 years you know this notion that you don't know what it's really like you know you know you know i don't want to use yeah you weren't there type type uh, type phrase and you think well okay you know this is a really actually sensitive and important discussion to have that you've brought to light Gronia, which is actually why are we denying why are we making those associations? Why are we making those judgments of women in teaching? You know, this is a profession of over 75% females. Um, why are we, you know, and as at the point, one of the what writers makes, this is often women doing this to other women. Um, and I think that's an interesting thing that came out of it. Yes, it's not, it's not just uh, the, the, la- the realm of men that will make, make these comments. And like the ovulation app, that was another female giving it to a female teacher. It's, it's that kind of, oh, it's misguided sometimes. The, the comments that people make about fertility is so often misguided. The, the really common response to somebody who's had a miscarriage is, at least you could get pregnant. And that's a dreadful thing to say to somebody who's just lost a child. Like we, like we, I know people listening at home can't hear this, but all of us just wince then. Like it's that, it's it's a difficult thing to to imagine how or why people say these things, but they do, and it's a really common thing to happen. And unless we, we reflect and think about why we do these things, then we won't change. Yeah, and I think when when you're reading this feature this week, hopefully um, people will recognise that this is a broader issue in the sense that we need to get away from some of this notion of teaching being uh, a, a profession of of just childcare, and that this and covid hasn't helped in that i mean the notion that this is where we stick our children so we can go to work is, is become quite strong and i know while you're in the course of the research of this feature that's not actually in the feature you looked at this notion of you know when women could be teachers and at what point they had to stop being teachers and we didn't have enough room for it unfortunately but there's some really interesting stuff there wasn't there Oh, it's fascinating. This idea that once you're married, you have to leave teaching. Um, it, it's a, by some bizarre coincidence. I was at the, the beach a few weeks ago and an, a lady came up to me and started talking to me as some people just like to. And she was quite old and she was explaining how her mother had been a teacher. And when she got married, she had to quit. They made her made her resign. And her mother, to her deathbed, was still really put out about this fact that she had to sit down from her teaching job. And when you start digging into this, there was cases that groups of women brought against their learning authorities, saying that, you know, we just because we're married, it doesn't mean we can't teach. And I went through and read the um, discussions in Parliament about when they, ta- they actually changed the Act 
and say, and people saying things like, you know, actually, I think women who are married will still make good teachers, as if this was a radical idea. And mm -hmm. this is in our living memory. Like, we, there's people alive who lived through this, and it's not such a long time ago. And that's why those attitudes still continue to, to permeate our society because it's it wasn't we haven't come that far really. It's mad, isn't it? The humans are really not as smart as we like to think we are sometimes. The idea that that as a society was something we all did and thought was good. It's like, oh, you're married now, therefore you can't be a productive part of the labour force and contribute to people's lives because you've put a ring on your finger. It's just like, we literally all went along with that. And then someone one day went, hang on a minute. And it's just baffling. Yeah, it is baffling. Yeah. When you put it like that, you just suddenly think, how, I mean, even like 20, 30 years ago, I mean, Here's, here's a completely unrelated example. I, I, I sat down and watched The 40-Year-Old Virgin the other night, uh, the film. I couldn't believe that ever went. I, 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 I was cringing as I watched it. it. It's so of its time, and you just couldn't release it now. And I was just like, I mean, but I lived through it. I remember watching it thinking, oh, this, is, this is funny. This is, this is a good film. And I watched it again. I, was like, I couldn't even finish it. I was, like, I was cringing too badly. Maybe I've just got old. But um, but it's these things that happen in the past. And then you look back, as you say, and you think, how was that ever a thing? And I think this your feature is another example. Like, why did we ever think it was fine to talk to someone about their fertility? Like, it's none of our business. Like, literally none of our business. And in any other workplace, I mean, HR would be knocking on your door probably. Um so it's, it's, it's a great feature and I, I recommend you you have a good read of that and and also have a read of the male primary teacher's story and how he actually didn't you know he's I think he's 40 years old and, and doesn't have children and has had none of that stigma but actually people were making assumptions about his partner you know they, they bypassed him completely but they were making assumptions about his female partner about fertility it, it's it's absolutely bonkers but um have a read and and, and as as Corinne said it's a, it's an incredibly sensitive and 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 moving read okay let's move to feature number two so i'm going to talk about this one i mean this one came out of uh well i'll be honest i went to a parents evening and i sat on a tiny chair and i thought this is quite bonkers sitting on a tiny chair to, to talk to a teacher who's also sat on a tiny chair. And I wonder what, what the rationale of this is. Why, why are we all, why is school furniture so sort of practical? And, 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 you know, we make kids sit down all day and at the moment they're sitting down for even longer periods than they ever have been. And yet they're all sitting in the same seats. And so I got Simon Creasy to look at this and, you know, there's some quite shocking stats. I mean, uh, before pre-COVID, um, it was calculated that children spend typically around 15,000 hours seated during their school years. And over the past, I think, 10 years, we've seen a 13% increase in 10 to 16-year-olds reporting significant occurrences of back pain. We've got a 10% increase in teachers having uh, visited the GP as a result of school furniture-related back pain. And we've got an 8% reported increase in disability from chronic symptoms that people have also linked to school furniture that doesn't really fit and I think Simon makes a really good point in the piece and he says well the reason this furniture is like that is one budget two practicality you know they need to be stacked you know we need to stack furniture and it needs to be fireproof and that's pretty much the only consideration we have and we we buy it in age bands not size bands so I mean it, it's bonkers because the size difference between I don't you know there was always the big kid at school right you know and there's always a little kid at school and the height difference between them 
was probably about two foot. You know, there the, the, was huge and they were sharing the same seat. And it's a bit like we were saying with the previous feature. You look at that and go, what are we doing? Like, how is that even happening that we're making these kids sit on hard plastic chairs that are all one size? Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'll offer it up to you two. What did you guys think of the feature? Well, I think what you're saying there all makes, does make sense. But I do feel for the, anyone with budget responsibilities listening to us and thinking, yeah, but you try buying <laughs> chairs that have got to survive for years of, with like children who couldn't care less about them. And what do they want? You know, do they want, I, I do like the idea of a classroom full of like every child in a massive armchair, like <laughs> sitting back and reading their book. And that would be something quite amusing to see. But or on a beanbag. Yeah, that would be nice. But I, I, I suppose it, it does come down to what you're saying there, though, that maybe it's an area that could be looked at again and actually just because something is done this way right now we have everything stackable and just you know functional so that doesn't mean you can't evolve from there and sort of be also bringing in a bit more comfort and a bit more something that's more suitable for learning and obviously there's a really nice little box out in that feature from a teacher in Bahrain who um, explains that at their school they take a totally different approach where the child can essentially sit where they want on a, on a beanbag on a sofa on a carpet on a chair rocking stool even so they've got all these different approaches because it's more like the child will dictate where they want to sit and how they want to use that towards their learning and obviously there are many schools where that probably isn't feasible but it shows you can innovate and try something new and the humble chair you know it should not be this thing that never changes while everything else evolves around it we should know it shouldn't we dan that about three years ago you wrote a whole feature about chair design if you remember well, it was, i interviewed a chap who'd written a book about that's right the history yeah. of the chair yeah. um which you know and you think about it again it's like well with every human, all humans sit down. So we've always designed <laughs> chairs, you know, from thrones to, to, you know, rocking chairs and everything in between. And he sort of talks about that point that we've never really got a chair right because we're not designed to sit down. And that's true. Actually, no one can sit down for huge periods of time. Eventually you have to get up and move around. I mean, the worst chair I ever sat on was on a, you know, like an overnight coach journey because you're stuck in your chair for so long. So yeah, this it- is not, brought about some good memories of it's interesting what the uh, occupational health person said in the feature, which was that actually, yes, budget constraints are, are are very tough. And so what can we do with what we've got? And she recommended shuffling. And what she means by that is letting kids move around in their chair to adjust the points of contact, to adjust the points of pressure is, is probably more important than a, a right sized chair. And yet the point she makes is that most behavior policies won't let the kids shuffle in their chairs. You know, that's called fidgeting or, you know, especially in some of the schools, you know, where, where they may adopt slant or something similar to that. You're in a situation where the, the, the child has to be, you know, if they were twisting around and all this sort of thing, they'd, they'd find themselves in trouble quite, quite quickly. I mean, well, let's go to the ex-teacher on this one, Groiny. I mean, should we have more leeway for shuffling in schools or do you think it's the thin end of a behaviour wedge? I think she meant shuffling like constantly i'm sure she just meant shuffle around and adjust yourself every now and then i don't mean that that's spoken that's like a teacher even pleading for it not to be true <laughs> even in even in the strictest schools there are times when you move around in your chair and adjust yourself to get comfortable and there's plenty of times when you transition between tasks in a lesson when everyone does shuffle around that's quite a natural thing to do i don't think that's a controversial at all but isn't aren't they saying it should be more like this is your dedicated shuffle time and they could play like 30 seconds of music and the kids could all but everybody would need to shuffle at different points wouldn't they because everybody would get uncomfortable at different points so i think naturally shuffling in your chair and accepting that's what people do isn't isn't too um outlandish what i thought was interesting is the fact that it didn't speak about um 
swinging on your chair now john and that's a favorite habit of yours to swing on the I, chair. i enjoy a, slip, a swing on my chair it's true a bit of a swing, um, a what, what do you mean back. by that do you mean leaning back or doing, doing this it's for, for for the benefit of the listeners i am leading back and so my voice is going to get slightly further away as i do it but yes i enjoy it and it's and it's uh it's almost like doodling for me it's 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 taking my brain to a different place and it's giving myself a little brain break and um, as an ex-teacher I hate kids that swing on their chair. It drives me mad because as soon as you walk behind them and they come crashing back down on your your toe and it's just, or they fall off, always falling off their chairs. So is it my chair that's not designed to do that? Yes. I, right, I see. They're my favourite chairs, the chairs that are designed that you can't swing on. And um, lots of people think that this is some sort of uh, like encroaching on their human rights. They can't swing on their chairs, but I'm all for it. I think you've made a good case for the chair being as it is, but we've also got this problem that we have health problems arising from this. So is the problem pedagogy? I mean, I think, let's, well, make, let's make Groinia really upset and talk about carousel tasks, which mean that we have to move around the classroom or get up, or should lessons be shorter? So that I they're- I thought it was going to be nicer to me today. This is just really I mean, surprising. I did think when you were saying about the, the impact of coronavirus, when children were at home and home learning, and sat at a chair for much longer, it makes you really appreciate the transition time when they move from class to the class. Because in that time, they do get to stand up, have a walk around, and then go and sit in another really uncomfortable chair for an hour. But at least they've got a bit of a break. When they're at home and home learning, that's just hours straight, sat in a chair, really uncomfortable. No wonder they only did a couple of hours and then went and played on the PlayStation. But I think, um, yeah, there's lots of evidence around lesson length and you know is is 45 minutes the optimal length of a lesson and we talk about this with Jared Cooney Horbath in in next week's podagogy podcast um which is a great listen by the way and uh, watch out for it on Wednesday um but there is this rigid adherence to a structure in schools of of we have to do it for this amount of time and we have to do everything in this certain way and it strikes me that actually is 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 the problem not just the rigidity of the chairs, but the rigidity of the system, if you like? I mean, that's a that's a philosophical take on this, if ever I heard one. I mean, I think it's just the chairs, isn't it? I mean, surely you've got to have some structure to your lesson, irrespective of the chair type you're giving to children. You have to sit down and write, aren't you? Unless you're advocating standing up and writing. Oh, that made me remember actually when you were talking about different types of chairs. You'll be surprised that I did this. I used to have a handwriting club. And in my handwriting club, I brought in um, the big, you know, the fitness balls that you bounce on. You don't bounce on them, you do like Pilates and stuff, but most yeah. of them just sit and bounce on them. But they would sit on that to try and help their posture, to help their handwriting. You see? Help. So you are an advocate of a different type of chair. And oh, I think we should, I think we should quit. It, normal chairs. Did it work? Did it help? Yeah, it really helped. So it was to help them remember to put their hand on the desk. And then they could transition to a normal chair. You can't take a bouncy ball around with them to every classroom. I was trying to make their life easier. I'm not talking about it all being like that, but you know, you've just adv- you've just said this worked and it was really good, but no chance I'm ever going to let it into a lesson. And then you just think, okay, well, if we, we need to be a bit more open-minded here. You know those like the um the chair, the orthopedic chairs where you have your feet tucked behind you so you can sit and it supports your back. That'd be fine. They could have those in school. So, so Groinia is basically mandating chairs that confine children are fine, but any chair that 
it makes no, a child movable is not fine. Their feet could be fixed in position and they couldn't kick anybody, could they? Could we nail the chairs to the floor? Is that what we're advocating? I mean, the old style desks well, that were a desk and a chair connected to each other. Is this what yeah. you're advocating? A oh, that's my absolute favourite. Remember when I did the seating plans magazine piece? Another great read. You should go and read that. The idea of having a single desk with the chair and the desk all in one, that's the dream. Victorian classroom, you're, you're born a hundred years too late, Gronya, in, in so many ways. Um, let's quit while we're ahead, I think, uh, <laughs> and go to the next feature. So feature three we're going to look at today is um, one about cake, and we're going to go to, to Dan for this one. Mm, I, feel, I feel I'm really taking to frivolous territory now, but... Um... The, um, there's a nice short piece by Luke Marsden who talks about the slight madness of that when it's your birthday, you're required to bring in cake for other members of staff and, and all the various sort of permutations that come with that. How much do you buy? Who's going to actually use it? How far does it have to spread? You know, why do you have to buy it? And it, it immediately made me think of, yeah, I agree there's a lot of these pressures in, in all jobs actually, like it, previous place I worked once, there was a real pressure to bring back biscuits and things from the holiday you'd been on. So you went on holiday, but the end of the holiday came with the pressure of taking something back to the, uh, to the to the rest of the team, some of whom were vegan, some of whom were had various allergy intolerances, and it, it was just like, well, I've just been on holiday. Why have I got to bring work with me on holiday and think about what treats I have to buy you lot, which I don't really want to do anyway. And I remember also having to buy Dunkin' Donuts once because that was a tradition at a previous place I worked when it was your birthday. And I remember going to Tesco's and thinking, this is like eleven pounds for donuts I don't want on my birthday. <laughs> and so in the end, I didn't do it, and I just bought some. What like Luke says, I bought some other smaller, like, you know, two to three pound bags. And there probably be people listening to this who think I'm a misery for that and think, oh, it's tradition. But I'm with Luke. I think it's a very strange thing. And it's part of, the, again, the weird, you know, working world etiquettes and, you know, things that exist. I was wondering as well if it's, you know, teachers perhaps rely on each other more than in a, any other profession. You know, mm. the, you know, the kids are going between, especially in a secondary school, kids are going between teachers. You need some consistency. You need everyone to pull together. You need help uh you need people to help each other out and perhaps there's 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 a there's symptoms of a team that works and symptoms of a team that doesn't and is cake a symptom of a working team isn't is is a is taking that hit on your birthday like you dan you said dan and popping in and spending you know a large and horrible sum on 15 uh caterpillar cakes for your birthday because actually you know that the staff room is going to be full at lunchtime. There's 60 people who need to see. Well, I'm just, I'm just trying to think of a size of a staff room and how many slices you'd need. And, you know, it does get a bit ridiculous, doesn't it? I think. And I think but, packs of smaller bite sized things are better because it's, it's, you're going to cover more people. You have more choice and it's a little bit cheaper. And it's I, not. Would you get judged though? Cakes. It's nice to bake cakes and to bring it in and share with people. And I, I when I went on um, maternity leave, my my last school, somebody made me these amazing Snickers cakes, like, and it was delicious. And she was so such a thoughtful thing to get because when I was pregnant, I was obsessed with peanut butter, and I said I'm a little bit. But um, it can be a really like personal, a pe like somebody baking a cake and bringing it in is lovely. You can share recipes, and it like. You say it's a symptom of a nice team. I think it's it's when things work well together, you like doing nice things for each other. Well, that's a nice sentiment to finish that discussion about cake on. I still would resent buying cake myself, but we'll we'll leave it on the nice sentiment of it being a nice thing and let the hate mail come your way as everyone's now expected well, to bake cake. 
Like, what do they think? You know, this is a good discussion topic. Do they like buying cake on their birthday? Do they have to buy cake on their birthday? Okay, we should, uh, when you tweet this out, Dan, we should start that discussion. Cake poll. Okay, we do a, do a cake poll. Yes, do a cake poll, Dan, and we'll report the results next week. All right, we'll um, do. Okay, number four. We're not going to look at a feature here, but I think it's worth going to our resident, and I'm surprising her with this one, exams expert. And because it, we can't really ignore the fact that, you know, the government have said this week that the exams are going to happen. Well, we've had U-turns before, but let's let's go with, let's trust them and say that they're saying the exams are going to happen. Um, we've done a few pieces this week about that, about how we adjust our timetable, about whether the kids actually believe it's going to happen. I think it might be interesting here to, to, to get your insight, Gornia, to say, okay, do the teachers believe it's going to happen? Can they afford not to believe it's going to happen? I think teachers are feeling mixed emotions about this. So there's and there's different. I think it comes down to subject to like different subjects are feeling more aggrieved about this decision than others. Um, it's it's tricky. Like and and even yesterday we had from uh, the interim leader um, head of off call saying that you know there's still a, there's still a chance you might have some optionality in the exams. We still might use things like multiple choice and I don't know um how how well that's going to be received by teachers now after hearing oh we're definitely having exams they're definitely going to be like how we've said they are but actually they might be a little bit different as well it's that uncertainty all people want at this point is a bit of certainty that this is how they're going to do it and I think the issue with saying exams are definitely going ahead is the response of but how how we've got schools that have been doing home learning pretty much non-stop since they've gone back there's schools that they're having to use rotor systems it's it's not uh it, you can talk about exams being fair but is it fair when not everybody's had the normal two years of gcc preparation to sit these gcse exams and the normal two years for a levels to sit their a level exams it's it's not going to be fair but what is the fairest way and I think there's a lot of discussion still to be had about if this really is the fairest way to do it. I think you summed up the the issue perfectly there, Groyne. And um, we'll continue to report that over the next few few weeks and months as, as we get closer. And I think as the the pandemic progresses and as more schools shut down for longer period, that that notion of fairness, especially with the disparities in the home, and you know if if a parent's working from home and they have three children who and there's four computers that are needed, then I mean we have to be realistic that this is going to be a problem even for affluent families who may have more than one device. I mean, you're still asking a lot to have four working you know, devices you can work on at home. So I think these discussions about fairness are just going to keep rolling on and um, yeah, we'll keep you updated on that. Okay. Last, I, I can't escape the fact that I have to do my lie test. Um, so I have three um, statements and I think you both got, you mean, Dan, you guessed correctly for Gronje and Gronje, you, you, you guessed correctly for Dan? Yes, we deducted correctly. So we deducted. So you both got it right. So let's see if you two can sort of agree which one of these is the true statement. Um, and I will do my best to look deadpan because I'm actually, I'm going to put my pad in front of my face because no, that's cheating. whenever Don't... I lie, I smile. and I'm already smiling. Smile because... for all of them. <laughs> okay, I'm going to smile for all of them. Okay, here we go. Number one. Trevor McDonald once called me a legendary journalist. Number two, I once had a coffee with David Cameron. Number three, Nick Clegg once stood me up. Okay, 
first question, Trevor McDonald, why did he call you a legend? I was doing some judging with him at uh, an awards uh, for Amnesty International, and we were we both took uh, offence at another journalist in the room who was talking rubbish, and I made the point that they were talking rubbish, and Trevor, legend that he is, called me a legend and said, yes, he's right, he's a legendary journalist. Hmm. Okay, Gronje, do you have any follow-ups? Or... I think I know what I think of that story. <laughs> um, under what circumstances did you have a copy of David Cameron? <laughs> David Cameron, uh, I went to his office before he became leader of the Tory party on work experience. And we sat down and talked about the beast of some sort of, there was a, there's a large cat that was roaming around his constituency. And that tenuous link led to the journalist I was work shadowing, taking me to parliament to discuss the cat, the big cat with Cameron. And so we sat in his office. What year was that? God knows, actually. It was probably after university, so probably around 2008. Mm. Okay. I don't think I've got any follow-ups to that one. I think I know I think of that as well, but we'll see. And what was the last one? Nick Clegg stood you up. Well, has he stood You've been on a date with Nick Clegg. That's weird. It, it was, it, I wish I had been on a date with Nick Clegg. Lovely man. I know he lived in Putney when I lived in Putney as well. Um, no, I was doing a feature for a, a magazine called Local Government News, and he would had some new... I can't even remember now, some sort of policy, some sort of housing policy. And we were supposed to have a call about it. And he stood me up and uh, the call never happened. And it was very disappointing because I'd already told people that I was going to interview Nick Clegg and it was quite exciting at the time because I was a young journalist. Um, but it never happened, unfortunately. Because where were you going to meet him? Just on the phone? You just just on the phone. phone, yeah. It was just a phone interview. for. I, I mean, I guess local government news wasn't setting setting him alight at the time as a as a priority call. Um, an apology or an explanation? Or? I think the PR just said he had a busy schedule and, you know, the normal PR fob off of, which mean, you know, oh, okay. sorry, he's really busy. We'll try and rearrange and you never hear from them again. Okay. Gronio, have you got any? No, I, I, I think I know which one is true. Right. You, you work through them and I'll tell you what I think afterwards. I think the David Cameron one's true. Okay, well, I think the Trevor McDonald one is definitely a lie. I don't in any way Trevor McDonald saying you're an absolute legendary journalist for telling off another journalist for something they said in awards to. <laughs> that, just, that just doesn't sound like something he would say. I, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't know. The David Cameron one, I don't, I don't quite buy the timeline of that. And I'm, no, I'm, that, that, I'm a bit iffy about that. But I, the, the Nick Legg one is just too likely. Well, the Nick Clegg one is, is quite boring as well, isn't it? It's like, oh, Nick Clegg didn't ring me once. It just seems a bit like it could be believable because it's sort of masking, it's sort of hiding away behind other more... That's why I think he said it. Like, who wouldn't stand up, John? That sounds really likely. So, Ooh, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a difficult one. I, so you're, you still think the Cameron one is true? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm sceptical about the timeline of that one. But I think my memory is quite hazy. I just have to say, like, yeah. don't hold me to my dad's timeline. The other one, the Nick Clegg one, was too boring to, to tell that story. So it probably is the Cameron one. So I think I agree with you. We'll go with David Cameron is the true story. Congratulations to both of you. We, you've guessed right. You are. We've once again proved Amy Forrester wrong. That in you know this this started three weeks ago with an Amy Forrester piece about how lies are really hot hard to spot, and we spent the last three weeks demonstrating she's wrong.
So I feel really bad for Amy. Um, Trevor McDonald, I did judge a competition with him for Amnesty. We did call out another journalist. And afterwards, he did come up to me and, and was very nice, but he didn't call me a legend, which was really sad. Um, I've never met Nick Clegg. I did write for local government news, which is very, I actually quite enjoyed. And Dan was working in the same stable of magazines at the time. But yes, David Cameron, I did go and have a coffee with him um, when I was on work experience at the Oxford Mail. And we talked about the, the big cat roaming Oxford and he gets a lot of bad press, Cameron, and I'm not political at all, but I can honestly say he was a lovely man and took an active interest in my career, asked me lots of questions and he he gave me a lot of time and he didn't have to. So, um, yes, there's my... That's when he was... Look at the power, right? I mean, he was on the cusp of power. I think he was. I think he was writing Michael Howard's. Was Michael Howard leader at some point? I think he was right behind the man. One of the manifestos at that point when I met him, um, and then he later became the leader. But yeah, he was. He was in, incredibly, you know, normal and nice man at that point when I met him as a as a young journalist. Good. Well, that's nice to know that, in spite of everything, he was nice to you once in a meeting. <laughs> Well, there we go. Um, next week's magazine has a very uh, interesting cover feature by Jess Powell, which asks whether pedagogy can be prejudiced. And it's it's an unconventional feature for us because it's structured in a, in quite an interesting way, and it and it has some very insightful comments from the likes of Doug Lamov and several of the academics in the US who are behind um, some of the Black Lives Matter movement and the the efforts to create a pedagogy that can integrate and help integrate different factions of society. So it's, it's a complex feature, but it's an incredibly interesting and worthy feature. And I think, uh, I hope we get a good feedback on it and we will be talking about that next time. But for now, that's all from us free and we'll see you next week. If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief podcast and want to read more of Tez magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.